This morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. So if you want to go ahead and take a minute to read that. And we're going to be thinking about the attribute of God of God's holiness. And just as a very brief comment on another attribute of God, God's simplicity. Very briefly, God is simple and that means he's not made up of different parts that are put together as though one part of him is his love and then a different part of him is his holiness. God is love. God is holiness. And part of what that means means a lot of things, but part of what that means is that we can't pick and choose one attribute of God that we prefer at the expense of a different attribute of God that we don't prefer. We can't sort of amputate off some part of God because we don't like it or because it doesn't fit into our idea of what God ought to be like. And the reason I say this now when we're thinking about God's holiness is that the holiness of God is one of those attributes of God that many people have wanted to sort of cut out of him or cut off of him. But if you lose the holiness of God, you lose God. And not only that, but if you try to get rid of the holiness of God in order, in the attempt or the desire to try to preserve or uh, give special promotion to, say, the love of God, you at the same time lose the very thing you're trying to preserve and protect and promote because you don't have the love of God without the holiness of God because God's love is a holy love and his holiness is a loving holiness. It's the perfection of love, love to the highest degree and love of the purest kind. And when people say God is love, some t and uh, when they're trying to promote that as the the sort of exclusive attribute of what God is like. Sometimes what is meant by that is not so much God is love, but that love is God. That it is sort of the exaltation of some vague abstract idea of love that can be then filled with whatever meaning we want to inject into it. And so Yes, the Bible, even though the Bible says God is love, and yes, praise God that God is love. The Bible also says God is light. And light in that context has to do with God's holiness. And that's the attribute of God that we see uh, most highlighted and emphasized here in Isaiah chapter 6, in Isaiah's vision of the Lord on the throne. And in chapter 6, verse 3, the song that the seraphim are singing in worship of God is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. You know, last week we just talked about the Trinity and uh, people used to sometimes think or wonder if this threefold holy was a reference to the Trinity. That's very unlikely to be the case. Rather, in the Hebrew language, repetition of words was done for emphasis. So holy, holy would be saying very holy. But the rare threefold repetition that we see here of the word holy is the absolute strongest way to express it. It emphasizes the degree, the extent, the perfection, the importance of God's holiness. In the Bible, God's holiness has two 
uh, related senses, two ideas that go along with it. First, God's holiness has a categorical sense. And second, God's holiness has an ethical sense. And the categorical sense of God's holiness is that he is in a different category, that he is distinct, that he is set apart from all his creatures, from all the rest of all of creation. And holiness in this part is set apart from that which is common. And it uh, is about God sort of being in a class all by himself. J.I. Packer writes that God's holiness is everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object to us, us of awe and adoration and worship. It's the glory of God that we see here that fills the whole earth such that all the earth has ample reason to be in awe of this glorious and holy God. Holiness, in this sense, is God's transcendence, his exaltedness, his infinite majesty, that he is above all and greater than all. And we see this described in the passage in the two phrases of verse 1, that God is high and exalted and seated on a throne, that he's high and exalted above all else in all creation, that he's seated on the throne, ruling over creation as king of creation, and that he is above all, yet ruling over all, and that he would even appear to Isaiah reminds us that though he is distinct from this world, that doesn't mean he is distant from this world. God's holiness means that he is set apart. And it reminds us that he isn't just a sort of a better, slightly improved version of us, but he is in a different category than us altogether. He is creator, we are creature. He is Lord, we are servant. And like we've talked about, as creatures, we can't fully grasp that difference that exists between us and him. And his exaltedness reminds us of our smallness, our utter insignificance in his presence. And we realize how foolish, how utterly foolish it is to exalt ourselves because he alone is exalted and he alone is worthy of his praise and his holiness causes us to fear him and wonder in awe at his glory and fall down on our faces, if not in our posture, then in the attitude of our hearts to fall down in worship of him. There's a categorical sense of holiness and then there's the ethical sense that God is morally, ethically pure and perfect. And we can think of this in a positive sense and in a negative sense. In a positive sense, God's holiness is the presence of everything that is pure and good and right in him. And in the negative sense, it is the absence in him of anything that is evil, of any moral evil or sin. And in that positive sense, God is characterized by everything that is good and right and pure. And not only that those things are present perfectly in him, but he loves all that is good and right and pure. One writer said that God's holiness is the excellency and beauty of God's nature whereby his heart is disposed to and delights in everything that is morally good and excellent. He is 
perfectly pure, 100% pure. Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, talks about how ivory soap used to uh, have some ad- advertisement, some commercial about their soap being 99.4% pure. And he writes that, uh, you know, it, that apparently 99.4% purity, he says, is quite an accomplishment for soap. But for God, that does not cut it. P- and pure really is an idea that at least when it comes to God's purity, it's an idea that doesn't really exist in degrees. It's like the idea of perfection. You know, we say, we use the phrase that something is almost perfect, but if something is almost perfect, then by definition, it is not perfect. It is imperfect. And purity is the same kind of thing. Pure means completely free of any impurity or contaminant. And if something is almost pure, if it has any degree of impurity, no matter how seemingly small and insignificant, then by definition it is impure, not pure. And God is perfectly holy, perfect in purity. Everything in him is perfectly good and right and beautiful, and he loves all that is good and right and beautiful. That's the positive sense. And in the negative sense, it is the absence of, of any moral evil and sin. 1 John 1.5 that I referenced earlier says God is light and in, in him there is no darkness at all. There's not even a hint of evil or darkness in our God but his holiness is pure light so bright that even here in our passage in verse 2 we see that the seraphim have to cover their faces before the unfiltered brightness of God's holiness because it would be utterly blinding to any creature and imagine what we've talked about all the things that we see in the world that we know are wrong and evil, that rightly break our hearts or boil our blood. When we look at God, we know that there is not even a hint or shadow of those things in him. But when we look at God, we see the opposite of all that. Everything that is pure and lovely and good and beautiful. We see the perfection of the best virtues in this life. Perfect love and faithfulness, and selflessness, and compassion, and justice, and truth. God's holiness is the presence of all that is pure. It is the absence of any hint of evil. But more than that, it's not just the absence of evil, just like in the positive sense, his holiness is not just the presence of good, but his love for all that is good. In the negative sense, his holiness is not just the absence of evil, but his hatred and aversion to and opposition to all that is evil. He is totally separate from and opposed to any and all moral evil and sin. First John 1 5 goes on to say, after God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. He is light and he cannot have fellowship with darkness. Part of God's holiness is its intolerance of evil. How could an 
Almighty God maintain his holiness and at the same time love evil or wink his eye at evil or stand by and ignore evil forever. And in fact, the language in scripture of God's holy hatred of sin and evil is not moderate at all, but it's intense because he is, because he is holy, he hates sin. He detests it. He despises it. And in scripture, we often see it compared to the most revolting things in human experience to show how repulsive it is to him. And God's holiness, you know, then ought to be one of these things of great beauty and attraction that we see in God, that he is so different from this world and that he has all that is pure and perfect in him and that he is unlike the evil that that we see around us. But the problem comes when we make the connection between God's holiness and his right and good aversion to all that is evil and our sinfulness, the fact that there is evil in us, evil that, it, humanly speaking, is Im- impossibly, impossible to disentangle from or remove from or cleanse out of our hearts. His holiness cannot tolerate our sin. And our sinfulness can not stand before a holy God. And humanly speaking, we cannot cleanse ourselves to stand before him. And if that categorical sense of God's holiness that we talked about before creates in us, uh, when we're confronted with that, a, a realization of our smallness before him, our insignificance before him, then the ethical sense of God's holiness when we are confronted with it creates in us a deep, deep awareness of our sinfulness before him. Against his perfect purity, we see our impurity. It's like, you know, when we clean a wall in our house, it it doesn't look as bad before you start to clean it as it looks after you've cleaned half of it. And you know what I mean? If you have young kids, maybe you are familiar with this, uh, that you notice the walls looking a little dirty, you start to scrub off some of the little kid hand dirt prints that are on there and the crayon art and the um, smeared food and whatever else might be be smeared on there and you don't really see how dirty the wall was you know you knew it was a little dirty but you don't really see how dirty the wall was until you've cleaned half of it and you stand back and look right up next to that new clean sparkly white wall that dirt just jumps out at you more uh more clear than it was before God's holiness is like that. It's so bright and so pure that it makes what to our unaided vision might look only like a small stain of sin in comparison to the brightness of God's holiness. We see it for what it is. The deepest of corruption and stain. You know, we like to compare ourselves to others where we come out looking pretty good or at least not so bad. But when we see ourselves compared to the light of God's holiness, when we compare ourselves to him and his purity, then we begin to see our impurity and our sinfulness for what it is. Seeing God's holiness creates in us a deep awareness of our sinfulness before him. That's why in Isaiah's vision of God here, he le- it leads him directly to confessing his sin. Verse five, he sees God in all his glory and all his 
holiness. And he said, woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He confesses his sin and specifically he says he is unclean. He has unclean lips and unclean was a general term that describes any in the Old Testament anything making someone unfit to be in the presence of God and in the Old Testament is a broad category. There were non-ethical Moral, non-moral types of uncleanness but it's clear here that what Isaiah is confessing is moral uncleanness he's confessing his sinfulness because Isaiah specifically mentions unclean lips not because the rest of him is clean and only his lips are unclean but because his lips are that part of him which gives expression to and reveals the uncleanness and sin that is within him Just as Jesus said that it's out of the overflow of the mouth that the heart speaks. And in contrast to what we see the seraphim here whose lips pour forth continual praise because those lips give expression to holy hearts. Isaiah confesses unclean lips because he knows he is a sinner down to the core of his person. His lips give expression to his unclean heart. And Isaiah considers himself to be ruined Woe to me, he cries, I'm ruined. He, this is despair setting in upon him, hopelessness. And he would be hopeless, ruined, if God did not move towards him in grace. And we see what happens, what unfolds here, is that Isaiah is cleansed not because he cleans himself, but because God cleanses him. Isaiah can only confess And only God can cleanse. And that's the same with us. When we see our sin, we can despair. Or we can look to ourselves to try to solve the problem by ourselves. But all we could end up doing is smearing the dirt of sin around. Or we can simply confess the sin that is there and look to God who alone can cleanse us by his grace. And God here moves towards Isaiah in grace. God brings a coal from the altar, from the place of God's provision for for sin. And ultimately, that points us to the cross of Jesus, the ultimate place where God made provision for our sins so that sinful people could enter into his presence. See, that, the cross is where God's grace and God's holiness come together in God making atonement for sin so that sinners could be restored to a holy God and have fellowship without him. Without Jesus, without what Jesus did for us, without being clothed in his righteousness and being forgiven by him, trying to approach God on our own in our sinfulness would be like trying to hug the sun. But because of Jesus, we can approach And know and love God in his holiness because in Jesus we're cleansed and made right with God. We're purified. And God's grace, we see, isn't in conflict with God's holiness because God's grace isn't a compromising of God's holiness, but his grace is a satisfying of his holiness by dealing with the sin in us that would keep us from him through the sacrifice of a substitute for our sins. Ultimately, we see the holiness of God 
demonstrated in the cross, the ultimate demonstration of his love for purity and his hatred of sin. Because a holy God must deal with sin. But that place where we see the greatest demonstration of God's holiness is exactly the same place where we see the greatest demonstration of his grace and his love. Because God in his grace and out of his love for us provided a sacrifice for us who stood in our place and took our sin upon himself on the cross. God dealt with, dealt with my sin and your sin in the one who had no blemish of his own who had no sin of his own to be paid for so he could be our sin bearer with our sin being placed on him. He paid the price that we could never pay. And his, our sin is given to him and his righteousness is given to us so that we could receive the favor of God. His face turned towards us and shining on us in favor and love as his beloved children. And this is what we call our justification. Our sins put on Jesus so that we could be forgiven by God and Jesus' righteousness given to us so that we could be accepted by God. And not only are we justified through Jesus, but we are sanctified and being sanctified, set apart to God and growing in the holy lives that God calls us to, being conformed into the image of Jesus who is the, who, the perfect embodiment of the holiness of God. And so those two senses of God's holiness apply to us. The categorical sense that in the gospel we are set apart to the Lord. He has claimed us as his own. He has put his name on us and put his spirit in us and called us out of this world, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. We belong to him and we ought to live lives consecrated to him, dedicated to him, devoted to him. And that's, I think that's why here in verse 8, after his sin is atoned for, Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Because he knows that he belongs to God now. He's been set apart to God. He's been bought with a price. And he's no longer his own. And when we see the cost of our atonement, the perfect, pure Son of God undeservedly suffering the wrath of God for our sins, to set us free and give us life and reconcile us to God, then we can only, in deepest of gratitude, give ourselves to him. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, says the Apostle Paul. That price was the precious blood of Jesus. Therefore, he continues, honor God with your bodies. Do you see the cost? And do you see the call that that places on us? The second sense of God's holiness applies to us also, that ethical sense of, of God's holiness, that we are now called to be holy as God is holy, that God calls us to live lives of holiness. And in fact, frequently in the New Testament, holiness is, is identified as one of the purposes and goals of God's redemption in us that he in our lives on this earth would begin that process of making us holy and conforming us into his image and that in the next life we, that would be brought to completion. We would be completely free from sin in our glorification. 
1 Peter 1.15 says, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written in the Old Testament, God says to his people, Be holy because I am holy. God calls us to live lives of holiness after him. This is something that, again, can be uh, kind of uh, off-putting to, to us. Uh, you know, often when we think of us or people being holy, we kind of sometimes think of what is really a an ugly caricature of that. We think of sort of a holier-than-thou kind of self-righteousness and arrogant pride, the kinds of attitudes that you see condemned by the prophets and those who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him, and the kind of attitude that Jesus condemned in some of the religious leaders of his day who were clean on the outside but full of evil and sin and death on the inside whose so-called holiness was nothing more than false appearances and empty hypocrisy. External conformity to man-made rules but having nothing to do with uh, their hearts being conformed to the law of God. That is an ugly counterfeit. But what God calls us to is a holiness that in which we seek to model our lives after him and shape our character after him that we would be characterized by those things that are right and good and pure in him, in our lives, that we would love what he loves, that we would internalize and live out his good and holy law, the law that is summarized as the law of love. And so God's grace is not only comfort, but call. It's comfort in that it offers us forgiveness, but it's call in that it calls us to holiness and repentance. It's not only offer, but it's demand. And that demand doesn't make it any less gracious, but it is part of its grace because what it is calling us to, even though there is cost to that call and that demand, that cost is only the cost of leaving behind our sin, sin that only spiritually enslaves us and brings, leads us to spiritual death. And that cost opens the door to infinite gain, the gain of knowing Jesus more deeply through our obedience to him and representing him more fully in our lives and finding freedom in living to know and please our holy God. Let's pray. God, we give you praise that you are holy, holy, holy. And we pray that your holiness would captivate us, would, would draw us to worship you in humility. And we pray that your holiness would create in us a deep awareness of our sinfulness before you, not so that we would be left in despair, but so that we would see how great the work of Jesus is, how great the cross is for us. That it gives us freedom and forgiveness and reconciliation so that we can know and have fellowship with you, our holy God. And I pray that that would transform and change us in every part of our life, even down to the desires and loves of our hearts. And that in living lives of holiness, we would give glory to you, our holy God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.